Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 45 of We Upped Up. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And we're here once again to walk you through all of the times in history where we effed up. And we're actually departing from what we said we were going to do at the end of episode 44, um, which is kind of funny. I think this might be the first time that we've ever not followed through with what we said. I don't want to assume that, but Even if it's not, uh, we were supposed to be covering Andrew Wakefield today, but Cody said, forget that. I don't want to read through all the medical stuff. Let's do who we're talking about today, which is... Someone who I think you and I have a special disdain for. A person who might qualify as the most overrated American ever. (laughs) Ronald Reagan. You mean the famous Western actor? The great communicator, as he was called. Okay. Never heard that in my life, but whatever. Which which of his many F-ups are we <laughs> speaking about today? Probably not the one you're thinking about. You're probably thinking of... Do you want to guess? Well, I was thinking the HIV crisis, but that's because it was closest in my brain to what we're, mm. to uh, relevant you know things that we've been talking about lately, but I'm assuming it's not that. No. Okay. I don't know. Iran-Contra. No. Was that during Reagan's? Yes. Okay. God, there's yeah. so many. There are, and we'll get into this one. But yeah, uh, as Teresa said, yeah, this is supposed to be Andrew Wakefield, but I didn't understand a lot of the medical stuff. So I'm just like, if I can understand it, there's no way I'm going to make you or the listeners understand it. Yeah. So then I thought about actually going to somebody else, uh, Nick Leeson, whose $2 billion F up led to the dissolution of a whole bank. Yeah. Uh, and he's barely older than us. Ooh, bully. Yeah, so I'm like, but that involved a lot of financial stuff that I didn't understand <laughs> regarding like stocks and finance options and calls and puts, and I'm like, what even is this? This is this is this isn't real. So Cody doesn't like learning. If you haven't, if you haven't, I enjoy learning relevant information. <laughs> the intricacies of the financial markets are not relevant information to 99 percent of people. One could argue that they could be relevant to you if you had money to put in the stock market. Yeah, but we don't, so oh, yeah, they're that's not. Fair. That's fair. That's so yeah, fair. so I settled on you know Ronald Reagan. Just... He's kind of an easy target, Cody. That's this is low hanging fruit. I'm fine with that. <laughs> low hanging fruit makes it easier for me to research. That's true, and so... we are we are nearing the end of this. So low hanging. Yeah, fruit yeah, is we're fully... we're we're running out of fumes here. This you is know. allowed. I mean, we're, we're, we're not putting any more gas in the tank. we got to make it last till... <laughs> we got a quarter tank, and we, we have we, to make it five more episodes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Got a ways to go. So, you know, I, I, Daddy ain't got money to put in the till anymore. Oh, boy. I so, don't know what that means, but okay. Yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, so, anyway, Ronald Reagan. Uh, but first, as always... Background. Background. Going into the glorious decade that was the 1980s, Both the United States and the Soviet Union were at a crossroads. Both countries were in an economic downturn uh, and struggling to recover. Here we had the energy crisis. The Soviet Union was having its own sort of inflation and and stagnant uh, economic problems. But there's always money for nuclear weapons. Of course. Uh, There's always money in the kitty for nuclear weapons. That should be a t-shirt design. There's always nuclear weapons in the banana stand. Um, <laughs> nuclear armament continued to be prolific, with the two superpowers accounting for over 98% of the world's 54 
5,409 nuclear weapons, uh, known nuclear weapons, in 1980. I wonder who kept count in 1980. It's like one inventory person, inventory manager for all nuclear weapons. <laughs> They're like 5,408. Oh, God. I missed one. I have to go back through all 54,409. <laughs> I honestly don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's like several... Like you and like or like international like watchdog agencies or whatever. I was gonna say like maybe you have to report up. Like you have to send a report of how many you're making. Yeah, yeah. I bet actually it has to do with resource tracking to make sure how much uranium you have or something like yeah. that. Because I, I mean, I mean, a lot tracked. of the sources of uranium are in Africa. So. Exactly. I, I, yeah, but I'm not sure about that. But point being, there's 50, over 54,000 nuclear weapons in the world in 1980. Uh, under U.S. Presidents Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, and Jimmy Carter, and Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev, a period of detente had led to a warming of relations compared to the fraught 1960s. This period of detente produced the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty in 1972, which limited the number of strategic defenses each country could employ, and the Helsinki Accords in 1975, which was an international agreement that recognized each signatory's borders and rights under international law. Okay. So, so like that first one, it, it sounds kind of weird. Like, why would you limit your number of defenses? Well, if you have more robust defenses, the other side can perceive like, oh, they have better defenses than we do. They're more likely to launch a first strike because sure. any time re- any retaliation from us isn't going to affect them as much. Right. Exactly. So that's why that was important to kind of get rid of those stockpiles, like those missiles, even though they weren't nuclear missiles. Right. They were just relevant to nuclear defense. So basically, they were like, if everybody reduces the amount of defenses, then you'll be less likely to strike First. the other. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, they were like, okay, cool. So we did that. And now we're feeling good. So we're going to recognize the borders of all the signatories mm-hmm. and we're all going to be happy campers yes. about it. This period of detente ended with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. Uh-oh. As seen in the feature films The Living Daylights and Rainbow Three. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, the, this... Those of all of the movies that potentially feature this point in time, those are the two that you pick. Yes. The invasion was a perceived failure of detente and was one of many factors that led to the loss of Carter in the presidential election of 1980, to the popular Republican Ronald Reagan. And you're re- you're going to show me the picture. I'm going to show you a picture of Reagan. Because I don't know what Reagan looks like. Yeah, well, you know. I'm not going to go into deep background about Ronald Reagan. Oh, really? Because there are a blue million biographies on the man. Born February 6, 1911 in Tampico, Illinois. Moved to California in 1937 and became a... B-list actor. Mm-hmm. Lots of westerns. Not 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 like a Charlton Heston level, or or John Wayne level of actor. Kind of in your your secondary movies, people don't go see as much because hey, it wasn't that good. There have to be there have to be people out there padding those movies to help other people launch to stardom. Yeah, well, he was the Screen Actors Guild president from 1947 to 52, and from 1959 to 1960, where he was active in blacklisting suspected communists. So was he blacklisting communists from the Screen Actors Guild? Suspected communists from the Screen Actors Guild? Well, he was reporting these people to be suspected communists, and they wouldn't get jobs. 
Okay, actors. Other actors. Actors, writers, directors. Okay. Okay. I just wasn't sure what you meant in terms of scope. Which is also weird to think about Ronald Reagan as a union president. Yeah, right. Especially since, you know, during his term in office, famously, the air traffic controllers went on strike. Oh. And instead of coming to negotiating with them, he fired them all. Yeah. And and basically, they weren't able to reform a union at all. So... So, like, as union-busting as you can get. Uh, that's funny. He was like, you know what? You know what's better than unionized air traffic controllers? No air traffic controllers. Well, he just, he deputized the military to come in and basically take over until they could refill the, uh, slots. Tell you what, I would not be flying during that time. Oh, yeah, like, like, air travel, like, the numbers went down significantly because there just weren't, still weren't enough. They probably canceled a ton of flights. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I would not feel comfortable... You know, no matter the military, I would still not feel comfortable. Yeah, and, and that's a <laughs> having pro- scab air traffic controllers. That's a profession that has always had worker problems, like in terms of number of employees. Because I mean, yeah. today, even today, there's still shortages of it. But yeah, but yeah, Ronald Reagan, union president. It was probably <laughs> self-serving. It sounds like yeah. he was like, you know what? I'm not that great an actor. Let me be the yeah. the SAG union president. Uh, he came to national attention as a politician in 1964 while he was campaigning for Barry Goldwater in his failed presidential campaign. He was elected governor of California in 1966, serving in that role from 1967 to 1975, and not the last actor to serve in that role. Right. Go ahead and just say it. I know you want to. It's the governator. Yeah, I know. The a far better actor. Brandon the Republican primary against the incumbent President Ford in 1976, but was narrowly defeated, which is not something you see really anymore. I think the last time the incumbent president was challenged in a party primary, like significantly challenged in a party primary, was 92, I think. It's like Pat Buchanan against uh, George H.W. Bush. It, It doesn't really happen anymore too much. I mean, yeah, there's always kooky candidates who always run against the president. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just doesn't really happen anymore. Uh, he ran again in 1980, this time clinching the nomination and defeating Carter in the general election. Reagan took a much harder line against the Soviet Union than his immediate predecessors. Upon coming into office, he pushed for a greatly increased buildup in military capabilities, including nuclear missiles and other delivery systems. The Soviets, not wanting to fall behind, were forced to increase their own military expenditures. Reagan's buildup included plans for cutting-edge technology, mostly under the umbrella of the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, colloquially nicknamed Star Wars. Hmm, I've heard of this. Yeah. It was not, like, that nickname was not official. It first popped up in a Washington News, or Washington Post article 1983, is like a quote from, like, Ted Kennedy or something. George Lucas actually sued <laughs> later on because he didn't want yeah. the name Star Wars associated with this. But it was dismissed because it's like it was just kind of like, well, they're not, it's not in official use. Like you can't just like you don't you don't necessarily own the rights to the word star and the word wars. Mm-hmm. So unless it's like something where like somebody's profiting off of it, you're not. No, that's fair. Yeah. I can understand being upset and then being like, what What do I do? What do I do? Yeah. Sue him. So it was announced by Reagan in March 1983 it was a program that just encompassed new technologies that would render nuclear weapons obsolete. Lasers. I'll get to that. 
philosophy behind SDI was that if it were deployed, it would be able to neutralize any nuclear weapon launched at target, making it pointless to have nuclear weapons in the first place. So it would just be like, this is going to negate any nuclear weapon that you have. So why even have it? Exactly. Best defense is a way to destroy the bomb. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) However, SDI was not without controversy. It would have to be given to everybody or placed under international control. If a nuclear-armed country had SDI technology and another one did not, what was to stop the SDI country from launching a preemptive strike with no consequences? Right, exactly. Same thing with the anti-ballistic missile treaty. Yeah. Uh, SDI would require placing weaponry in outer space, a violation of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, signed by most countries and what formed the basis of international space law. International space law. My favorite place to practice law. International space. Yep. And the technology required will be cost and labor intensive, if possible, at all. Right. So, So basically they went headlong into this idea without even knowing that it's possible. Right. It's amazing. Love it. Nevertheless, Reagan strongly supported SDI, which became a Department of Defense agency in 1984. Oh, boy. So now it's under the DOD. Numerous concepts were considered, including advanced interceptor missiles, rail guns, plasma weapons, X-ray lasers, and particle beam weapons. Wow. Yeah, it sound it's you see why people called it Star Wars. Yeah, I, I, I see why, but also it's it seems like some of these ideas are more conceptual than practical. Well, I mean, every idea starts off as a concept. It's just like, okay, what technology do we have now? Can we advance it further? What technologies can we combine to form something new? I mean, it it makes sense to, like, you know, it's from, like, a concept research development standpoint. They're like, look, we're just throwing spaghetti. We're just seeing what sticks. Yeah, and there were several different concepts they worked through. So, I mean, it wasn't entirely fruitless, which we may come back to at the end. But here's just kind of a overview of, like, some things in it. I know it's kind of hard to read, but, like, you have, like, uh, some, like ground-based interceptor guns, you have the radar, surveillance and tracking, and this one wacky idea, you'd fire a laser up at this relay mirror in space, it'd bounce off another satellite, and poof, right on the missile. Yeah, I've, I've heard about that, actually. So, like, all these various different, like, space-based lasers. You know what's funny? I uh, feel like some of those ideas have shown up in, in sci-fi movies. Like, I think the the um, the laser, like... Uh, satellite thing didn't mm. that show up in a James Bond movie? Diamonds are forever. Yeah, exactly. And when was that? 1971. So you're sitting there and telling me like, oh yeah, let's just throw see what sticks. Sounds like Reagan was in the probably. I'm sure there's a White House movie theater watching all the James Bond movies, and he was like, "That's it, that's it. We're gonna do laser-based satellite mirror targeting system." rather fitting he would take the idea from the bond villain <laughs> well gotta get him somewhere right yeah yeah we'll, we'll get into like some of these concepts like in their later effects but while development was classified of these specific ideas you know the program was public knowledge like reagan went on t like a national address saying he was we were going to do this and development of sdi worried soviet leaders including general secretary mikhail gorbachev here is a picture of him you've probably seen him before i've seen the birthmark yes that yes. is the <laughs> his 
notable physical characteristic. Wine stain. Yep. Birthmark. Uh, born on March 2nd, 1931 in Provolnoye, Russia. So he's about 20 years younger than Reagan. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know that. I yeah, yeah. I... you think of those two leaders, it's like you don't really think about like an age difference. But yeah, they're 20 years apart. Oh, wow. So uh, he graduated from college in 1955 and started working his way up the Communist Party ladder. He oversaw construction of the Great Stavropol Canal in 1970. So it's kind of showing like he can manage big, you know, grand infrastructure projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, he joined the Politburo in 1979, uh, the most powerful policy-making body in the Soviet Union. Think of it like a cabinet of ministers. Okay. Uh, they each have a assigned role that they serve. So you got like transportation, yeah, infrastructure, yeah, yeah, sort building of. or whatever. Bridges. Uh, uh, in March 1985, after the death of Konstantin Chernyenko, Gorbachev was elected as general secretary. He's the guy in charge of the Soviet Union now. And he's also like the first of like this next generation of leadership because Brezhnev had come into office in 1964, mm-hmm. and he had stayed there until he died in November of 1982. So he was wow. there for a good long while. 18 years. And That's basically, the next few leaders were basically just like, okay, well, you're the next most senior guy. You're up. Oh, okay. You can see how this goes. Yeah. His ne- the next guy was Yuri Andropov, who was the head of the KGB. He lasted about 16 months. Mm-hmm. He died in f- February of 84. I'm like, okay, the next guy up, Chernyenko, same generation, same age, terminally ill. Oh, no. Died in March of 85. He lasted a little over a year. So it's like, you're just going through these guys, and they're like, all right, we're not doing that anymore. Let's just give it to the next generation of leadership. And they're like, okay, Gorbachev, okay, he's proven he can do stuff. Let's let's get him in there. He built a canal. He can certainly run a gigantic country. Yeah, so he's, he's only, yeah, because he's 54 at this time. So, you know, They're age. like, he probably isn't going to die next year, so this is good. Yeah, that's a big improvement. Yeah. So. And it's kind of funny because when you think about the Soviet Union, especially in the 80s, you think about like contraband and the fact that they're decades behind, that they've basically been frozen in time and they are not up to the same, you know, both like technologically, militarily, government wise, but also like folks don't know what's happening outside of the country. And in terms of culture, just cultural stagnation yeah well i mean like under brezhnev like that was kind of the whole thing the whole like it was like you have this aging leadership who's basically stuck in place Mm -hmm. and that affects you know that radiates outward no new ideas are currently coming about there's a lot more corruption going on under under brezhnev which is funny because they're like communism won't have corruption yeah and Uh, now it's uber corrupt yeah so you see, yeah, you do see like this economic, political, technological, cultural stag, like it is literally like stagnating. It's like, you're right. It was like frozen in yeah. place for a good 15 years. Except for like the little snippets that they get from the outside world. Yeah. And it's like, they would just like a lot of times they would just copy the stuff. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this kind of takes place after Brezhnev and during Gorbachev's time. They basically copy the space shuttle. Oh yeah. And the yeah. Baron, even though, even though the Baron honestly was probably a better ship <laughs> because you could actually eject from it in case of an emergency mm-hmm. and it could be entirely automated. So better in that sense. So, yeah. So it's like, you, you definitely see like this, uh, this, this stagnation, but they also have to maintain that facade. 
right of, of like course. of parity with the United States. And once Gorbachev comes into office, we learn this in history class in high school and middle school, glasnost and perestroika, mm-hmm. openness, economic restructuring. Right. So now it's like, okay, now we know they're not as powerful. Now, right. now that doesn't really come about until like late eighties, kind of after we're talking about here, but you know, that does become a thing. So, but that's, we're not quite to that time yet. So, November of 1985, uh, Reagan and Gorbachev hold a summit in Geneva, Switzerland, where they meet for the first time, and they discuss the initial steps for cooling tensions between them. Cooling tensions. Because um, Reagan was definitely one of these politicians who was like, kind of a negotiating thing, it was like getting to know the person you're, like your, your, I don't say opponent, but the person you're negotiating with, developing like a personal relationship with them. We see that like him and Margaret Thatcher right. were close. Yeah, and it continues. I mean, we still yeah. try to do it now. Yeah, like I mean, I mean, it really depends on like who is right. in that office. It's like if you have so like Reagan, for all his faults, and I think he was primary elected on this, had great charisma. Charisma, yeah, as Matt Berry would say. Yeah, very charismatic, able to like you know schmooze with the best of exactly. them. Exactly, like Bill Clinton was that way, right? You know, so George Bush, both. Yeah, uh, W a little more, but um, as opposed to like you know just you know kind of cold professional, kind of like Obama, kind of like mm-hmm. a, a colder, prof- more professional type mm-hmm. of negotiation. So Reagan liked to develop a rapport with. Um, yeah, you can tell. Dude. Yeah. Oh you yeah. Can, you can so. tell he he was certainly personable. Yes. You know. At this summit, nothing was set in stone except that they agreed to meet again to first to further discuss arms limitations. They would meet uh, next in October 1986 in Reykjavik, Iceland. Ooh, I've been there. Yes, you have. I wonder where they met. Probably in. I'm there. going to show you, and I'm going to ask you if you've been there. I bet you I have. Reykjavik is a small ass city. Yep. <laughs> uh, meantime, arms escalations continued. The mere threat of SDI pushed the Soviets to ramp up their own nuclear capabilities. By 1986, the Soviets surpassed 40,000 nuclear warheads. Oh my god. This gosh. is their peak. Wow. So at this and the US at this time has about 25,000. There's over 65,000 nuclear warheads in the world. It's terrifying. The Soviets also felt compelled to begin research and development on their own version of SDI. All right. In September 1986, the American Physical Society the top society of American physicists completed a report which stated that SDI technology would not be feasible until the 21st century. Oh. From the report, quote, we estimate that all existing candidates require two or more orders of magnitude improvements in power output and beam quality before they may be seriously considered for application in ballistic missile defense systems, end quote. So essentially, the scientists came in and said, sorry to rain on your parade, yeah. but we're going to rain on your parade, and it's going to take a while. Well, the report was immediately classified Ugh. and not released to the public until the following year. So even though we were like, look, everybody's got to have this SDI stuff. But when the physicists came back and said, you, actually, you can't do it. We were like, don't tell anybody else. Not yet. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Cool. And this is the month before the summit. This seems like a very level playing field that we're setting. Heading into the summit, there was no way that Reagan would not have known that information. So he 100% was withholding that information. Yep. Okay. The two leaders met on October 11th and 12th, 1986. And I'm going to show you the, the place where they met. This is the former French consulate 
the way it looks, there's all sorts of accent marks on it and stuff. It looks like H-O-F-O-Y. It's pronounced Hodoy. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the that's where they met. So this is the back of it, and this is their expo center hmm. to the left, and directly behind it there is a lighthouse. And in between this building and the lighthouse, there's a a walk hmm. a, along the ocean because that's right on the coast. So yes, I have absolutely been there. I have not been inside of it, but I have uh, I have walked outside of it. Well, there, well, there you go. You know, years later you figure out what that place is actually for. Or what it was used for. <laughs> yeah, that's that's hilarious. Uh, it's not it's not that thing anymore. It's not the French consulate anymore. Oh yeah, I mean it wasn't at this time either. So oh, okay. it was just a former house that was used. And here's the two of them uh, meeting inside there. There's Ray and there's Gorbachev and there's their translators. I wonder who that photo is of or that portrait is of. I don't know offhand, but probably some Icelandic guy. Uh, so they begin negotiations. Gorbachev offered the complete elimination of all intermediate-range nuclear missiles, as well as having the number of intercontinental ballistic missiles by both sides, and the Americans would put a moratorium on SDI research for a decade. Wow. So, like, okay, both of us get rid of all these intermediate-range missiles, we'll half the number of ICBMs, and you don't research this SDI stuff for a decade. Okay. And we won't either. Even though okay. they, like, they're, they weren't really... Yeah. Without telling him that it's not even possible anyways. Oh, yeah. Reagan wasn't going to volunteer that information. Okay. So he's like... This is Gorbachev saying this. Okay. But also, Gorbachev is still thinking this SDI stuff is on the table. Yes. So he's negotiating as though this is still on the table. As if, like, this is might be ready in a few years. Okay. Yeah. Like, this is an immediate yes. concern. Yes. Okay. And Reagan, of course, is like, I've got two aces, well, man. I'm, I'm, that's what he's about to do. <laughs> Reagan countered with eliminating ballistic missiles completely. Not just having them. Yeah. Getting okay. rid of all ballistic missiles. But the SDI would be deployed against any remaining threats after a decade. Okay. As well as sharing SDI with the Soviets. Okay. Well, because remember, one of the concerns was like, well, if one country has SDI... They have an advantage. Remember, I told mm-hmm. right, right, right. So, like, if I, if you know, the Soviets also have it. Well, that doesn't seem fair. I thought that the whole thing was like, if you had SDI, you would give it to everyone. Well, I mean, the, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, the vast majority of nuclear weapons in the world are by the Americans and the okay. Soviets. So it's I like, see. so it's mutually. They're they're saying, okay, we're both going to have these protections in yes, place, yes. and if we achieve it, then you get it too in ten years. Yes. But right now, no ballistic missiles. Right. That's what Reagan kept yes. with. Okay. Gorbachev did not believe that America would ever share SDI technology, as the U.S. was hesitant to share much less important technology. Sure. Like, they wouldn't even share, like, oil drilling tech with the Soviets, which they had requested. Gorbachev then proposed the unthinkable. The complete elimination of all nuclear weapons... Within a decade, if F- if SDI research was limited to ground laboratories in that time frame. So you can't go up and test it in space. Okay. And that's, that's all he's asking for. Just like, just, just ground research over the next decade. 
all nuclear weapons are gone. I have to wonder what he's thinking at about in this moment. Like, maybe in his head he's thinking SDI is way further ahead than we know about. Mm-hmm. Because they they might not be sharing this information with us, but we have these nuclear bombs. And if they're coming to the table with this, they have to be light years ahead of where we think they are. Mm. So that has to be what he's thinking in this moment when he offers complete de- disarmament of nuclear weapons. I think like he's just seeing an opportunity because because Gorbachev like, and, and it's also- I, I I think because like he grew up like in the like forties and fifties, right? So Especially he, like in the face, like, like he's has as much like fear of nuclear weapons as you know. Like, I mean, this is the height of the Cold right. War. You know, Reagan did not. He grew up in like during the you know depression. Right. And just to be clear, when Gorbachev is saying complete destruction of nuclear weapons, he's saying both in the Soviet on the part of the Soviet Union and on the United States. Yes. Okay. So now, of him, course, that doesn't you know account for like the other nuclear powers, like I think uh, France, Britain, China, um, and India. But most of them are with these two countries, and he's like, "Yeah, you disarm yours, I'll disarm mine, and then maybe we can both pressure other countries to get rid of them, and we'll test this SDI stuff on the ground in ten years." Well, like over the next ten years, develop it. Development can only take place on the ground. Like okay. you can't send it up on a shuttle and go test it. Because then a decade's worth of time is plenty of time to be like, what are, what are they doing? What are they doing? And maybe... Yeah, yeah you... and also, like, maybe it's like, if we can get rid of all nuclear weapons in a decade, maybe we don't need this. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think... Does Gorbachev seem like the type of leader that foresaw complete nuclear disarmament of the world? Yes. He was that type of a leader? Yeah, I, 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 I mean... I feel like he he saw like you know the you know the the gun to the world's head and was like this cannot continue, like between like we have sixty thousand nuclear weapons that is enough to just annihilate the planet, blow us out of orbit. We don't need it. Yeah, it's like and also, Soviet Union still having economic problems. Sure, they can't afford it. Right. So he's also like, well. If we can get them to do this, and we also do this, that means we don't have to spend this money that we don't have right. on this boondoggle. Because, you know, part of Reagan's military buildup, the Soviets have to match it. Right. They have to keep up with it. And they cannot afford it. Yeah. So he's pro- he's also thinking, like, we just need to pull it back. How we can actually spend money on stuff we can, like, we can afford... Or, or what have we you. We desperately need. Yes. That aren't nuclear weapons. Yes. Wow, okay. Very interesting. If Reagan agreed, nearly all the world's nuclear weapons would be eliminated. The only price was SDI, which if nuclear weapons were gone, would have no purpose. Right. And what does Reagan do? He Fs up. This is where he Fs up, right? Despite, yes. This is where Reagan Fs up. Despite knowing... That SDI would not be ready for over 20 years, like, at least, well into the 21st century. Yeah. He refused. Oh, my God. Reagan believed that any restriction on SDI would be detrimental to the program, even though on-the-ground research and development would like would be the likelihood for the time frame Gorbachev wanted. Oh, my God. Reagan had the chance 
to end nuclear armament. So I think we automatically have a top three uh, ever <laughs> for the second half of this show. Um, and we we wouldn't be calling him the most overrated American ever. He would like, even though probably awful in several other aspects of the HIV AIDS stuff, war on drugs. Uh, I mean the interventions in South America, like what what like whatever, like all the horrible stuff. He would probably rank up there with like Lincoln and FDR and Washington as like the greatest presidents we've ever had. Because I mean, for that alone, yeah. For if he like had like, a slam dunk like in the, any one of those things. The the loaded gun that has been held to the world's head for the last forty years could have been, you know, unloaded and taken apart and never to be used again. And granted, like we have no idea what the implementation would have looked like. Right, other yeah, it would take time. But, but just even the thought that we were at the yep, precipice we were that of close. something like that. Yeah. Ding ding ding, we have a yep. winner. The summit collapsed without an agreement and the two leaders returned to their countries. Jeez. In September 1987, Reagan and Gorbachev met in Washington, D.C. to work on the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which eliminated all ground-based launchers capable of 500 to 5,500 kilometer ranges. The treaty was finalized the following year when the two met in Moscow. Which, remember, this was one of the proposals that Gorbachev was like, hey, let's get rid of all these right. like medium-range missiles. And they do end up agreeing on that, which is good. That's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. Which, but, I mean, when... All nuclear weapons are on the table. Yeah. Reagan left office in January 1989, succeeded by his vice president, George H.W. Bush. Bush and Gorbachev signed the START-1 treaty in July 1991, which further reduced nuclear stockpiles. Uh, the Soviet Union collapsed in December 1991, following a failed coup attempt against Gorbachev, the independence of the USSR's constituent republics, and Gorbachev's resignation. Reagan was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 1994 and continued in quiet retirement until his death in June 2004, which I remember we watched that in school. I think it was like the last week of school we watched it on TV. Gorbachev received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1990 for his role in ending the Cold War. He moved away from strict Marxist communism towards a form of social democracy in the post-Soviet era. So maybe you could argue, maybe he wasn't always a hard, like a hardline communist. Yeah. So he ran for president of Russia in 1996, but failed to garner much support. He continued on as sort of an elder statesman and was critical of his Russian successors, Boris Yeltsin and Vladimir Putin. Gorbachev died in August 2022. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, just like a year ago. It's so weird, like, him being relevant during that time, is it seems so separated from the reality that we live in yeah. now. Like, well, it was 91 when he died, so he was geez. quite old. Okay. So, right. But, he I mean, yeah, he, he continued on for a while. Uh, his final public statements in the months before his death were highly critical of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, which, imagine. again, is, like, kind of alluding to what you said, it's weird to think of Gorbachev commenting on the... Ukraine situation right. that we're, the world's going through right now. He just now. seems like he doesn't exist, yeah, you know, in like, the modern time. It's like he just existed uh, in the 80s until 1991. And then he was gone. And he did a Pizza Hut commercial after that, and that was it. Yeah, that's... <laughs> that is th one of the most bizarre things to watch. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I can, see, I can see why he did it. It also know. seems like if he was against nuclear armament or, you know, was willing to even put sacrificing that level of technological advancement and armament that 
peace was at the heart of what he wanted mm-hmm. what was and maybe it wasn't necessarily peace quote unquote but more like stability for Russia yeah because like, or the pre- Soviet Union because like previously the Soviet attitude was like well we need to advance communism throughout the world right you know type of thing maintain all these other communist regimes like Cuba uh, and China initially I mean they kind of split in the 60s that's not like um, an old school the Eastern line. Bloc. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Vietnam, Korea, you know. Right. But as you get into the 80s, you know, outside of Afghanistan, which... Right. Especially towards the end of the 80s, you know, they withdraw from Afghanistan. They decide, the Eastern Bloc, okay, you're all on your own anymore now. Right. We're not going to prop you up if you may, if you continue to be communist. That's up to you. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Especially towards the end of the Soviet Union, there were many reforms trying to, like, reform it into a more equitable like commonwealth type thing more like more like a much more loose federation mm-hmm. of states right uh but yeah it just didn't work um so it just kind of just collapsed but yeah he, he definitely seemed like he was maybe even if he wasn't like hardline communist or like social democrat or whatever it called like he kind of just saw the war and military complex just like this is a needless expense mm-hmm just you do your thing, we'll do our thing. It's fine. Take care of you. Yeah. We'll take care you of you. You do us. you, bro. Yeah. In the post-Soviet years, the arms control treaties slowly began to be set aside. The anti-ballistic missile treaty was terminated by the Bush administration in 2002, citing the need to protect the United States from a possible nuclear attack from a rogue state like Iran or North Korea. The Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the one that Reagan and Gorbachev eventually signed, was discarded by the Trump administration in 2019, citing Russian noncompliance and the need to counter Chinese nuclear buildup. The START-1 treaty expired in 2009 and was replaced the following year with the new START treaty, which expires in 2026. Given current U.S.-Russia relations, it is unlikely to be renewed. Yeah. So all these arms control treaties that came about that towards the you know, in the last decades of the Cold War, slowly going away. Yeah. As of 2021, there are an estimated 12,512 nuclear weapons in existence, down from the 60,000-plus peak of the mid-1980s. Russia and the United States account for over 88% of that total. Well, I mean, I guess that's progress, right? Yeah. We'll see, how my, we'll see how long that progress lasts. Yeah. Something to think about. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. Uh, just thinking about media, like the media that was coming out of Russia in the 80s was, was very scared of nuclear warfare. And we had kind of gotten out of that. Like, hmm. I, I'm just thinking about some kind of like underground indie movies that I've seen that came out of Russia during that time, like shot on video stuff. People were very scared that nuclear yeah. war was like right around the corner. I mean, it was still a threat. I mean, it was still perceived as a threat in the United States as well. Yeah, like not certainly not to the point of like the fifties or sixties. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean, cause you, cause you have like, you know, like red dawn and comic, the day after, you know, that kind well, of thing. And those were always like us coming out on top situations you know like red dawn 
you know, yeah. the scrappy United States would be able to to take care of it. Even our school children, uh, school children can fight. <laughs> yeah, but the comic books, like the media that was coming out of Russia, was very, very scared of that. And the United States, especially in the late eighties, didn't didn't even worry about it. No. And really, since then, I feel like the threat of nuclear war has really not been a huge concern, at least for the average common person since no. then. Well, because for most of you know the post-Soviet era, the U.S., I don't want to say stood alone atop, you know, as the world's, you know, world's lone superpower. I don't know, I don't know about all that. And Russia was certainly unstable. Um in the following decade, um, there's plenty of lost nuclear weapons. We don't know where they are, mm-hmm. which is kind of frightening. Yeah. But I, I feel like it's kind of ramping, especially in the past couple of years, it's ramping more up, especially with Russia's you know, recent aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, this whole Ukraine situation is very delicate. Yeah. Because, like, I mean... Uh, yeah, I don't want to get into all that, but it's just very delicate. China is certainly there; they are drastically ramping up their production of nuclear weapons because they want to be on par with the United States. I think it's estimated they have about 500 right now, and they're ramping up to try to get to uh, well over a thousand by the end of the decade, which we'll get into some of the ch- problems China is experiencing right now in a couple episodes. But and then there's courses like a whole bunch of other states like UK, France, they have them. India and Pakistan have them just kind of as a check on each other because mm-hmm. they've always been antagonistic. Mm-hmm. North, you know, North Korea, sure. obviously, we all that's the drama with that country has been well documented. It's always been rumored that Israel has them, but they'll never they've never confirmed it. But it's highly suspected that they have several warheads. Some countries have disarmed them, like South Africa developed them in, in the eighties towards the end of the apartheid era. Uh, but they disarmed them once apartheid was over. Mm-hmm. They willingly gave them up. And then, of course, when the Soviet Union collapsed, I think Belarus, I mean, not Belarus, but Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and I, either Belarus or Lithuania, they had nuclear weapons just on their soil because, like, mm-hmm. they're now independent countries. Right. So, uh, But they willingly gave them all up. You know, I'm sure Ukraine might be regretting that decision nowadays, but it's certainly, it's gotten better in terms of how much there is, but 12,000 is still way too much more than enough to like wipe out the surface of the planet. Right. So it's not where it needs to be. And I feel like it's probably trending in the wrong direction nowadays. Mm. You know, previous, you know, 20 years, it was probably going the right direction, but now it's like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yep. We're a first strike target. So, we will be the first to see. Yeah, we will be the first to see, and we won't have to deal with the aftermath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, on that depressing note, uh, sources. <laughs> uh, William Brood, Teller's War from 1992. Martin McCauley's Russia, America, and the Cold War, 1949-91 from 2008. Ronald Paw- Pawaski's The Cold War from 1998. Uh, and Robert Service, The End of the Cold War from 2015 podcast to recommend the almost forgotten there he uh kind of takes a subject does a few episodes on it like seasonal type of thing just stuff that's like kind of kind of flies under the radar 
did a really good series on the 80 years war that I enjoyed. So on the Dutch revolt. So, um, but yeah, go listen to them. Pretty good. So yeah. What are we talking about next episode? Oh, the next episode. Uh, one that shaped, uh, we, we returned to the old stomping grounds of the middle East where so many problems can be sourced to one agreement, the Sykes-Picot Agreement. I've literally never heard of that. Would have been taught in high school history, but that's fine. So uh, that's another episode where we have two effer-uppers. Oh. I know, uh, double dipping. So, <laughs> Please be sure to check out our other projects, including Attack of the Final Girls, a horror movie podcast with my lovely co-host, Juliet. Imperfect Men, yet another Rexypod writing all the Founding Fathers from Andrew Adams to George Wythe. The Drunken Pawn, a YouTube channel where we play board games and drink craft beer. Hard Ticket to Sedaris, a movie podcast covering the action films of the late Andy Sedaris. For all of our projects, visit our Twitter at AOP Pod Network. I'm Teresa. And I'm Cody. And this is We, we Effed Up. up.